KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon, hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. Good morning. I'm Annika Colbert. It's Friday, December 18th. Fact-checking whether economic shutdowns are worth it. We'll have that story next. But first, let's do the headlines. California reported over 50,000 new COVID-19 cases on Thursday. That's equal to what the whole country was averaging back in October. There was a record of 379 deaths, and more than 16,000 people are in the hospital. That's three times the number from just a month ago. Intensive care capacity is now at less than 1% in many of California's counties. Locally, San Diego County officials reported more than 2,600 cases yesterday and 22 additional deaths. As the pandemic worsens and unemployment goes up, so does hunger. James Floros, president and CEO of the Jacobs and Cushman San Diego Food Bank, says this year the number of people struggling with food insecurity in San Diego is estimated to have doubled to nearly one million. An outbreak of a contagious bacterial dog disease was reported in the county on Thursday. The San Diego County Health and Human Services Agency says that since October, there have been 34 confirmed and probable cases of leptospirosis. The cases were mostly in Hillcrest and Mission Hills. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. KPBS On Demand is supported by Arizona Raft Adventures, a third-generation family-owned outfitter providing experiential multi-day Colorado River rafting adventures through the Grand Canyon, hiking, exploration, education, and fun. Only a seven-hour drive from San Diego. Learn more at azraft.com. There's a lot of debate about whether government-imposed shutdowns during the pandemic go too far and unnecessarily harm society and the economy. Some GOP lawmakers in California claim there's no evidence that shutdowns reduce COVID-19 cases or spikes. In the latest segment of Can You Handle the Truth, CAP Radio's PolitiFact California reporter Chris Nichols spoke with anchor Mike Haggerty about fact-checking those claims. Chris, which lawmakers are making this claim and what exactly are they saying? Well, one example is Republican State Assemblyman James Gallagher. He represents the northern Sacramento Valley, and he made his statement on Twitter the same day that California issued its new regional stay-at-home order closing several business sectors. He wrote, government-imposed lockdowns do not reduce COVID-19 cases or stop spikes. Who did you speak with to fact-check that statement? I spoke with Lee Riley. He's a professor and chair of infectious disease and vaccinology at UC Berkeley School of Public Health. And he said the confusion over whether shutdowns work is understandable. States with some of the toughest mandates like California are also seeing the biggest spikes. But he also said that Gallagher simply got this wrong, that government restrictions do reduce COVID-19 cases because they eliminate some of that close contact that leads to the spread of the virus. 
But if you really look at the data closely, every time they instituted uh, restrictions, uh, we saw a decrease in the number of cases. It decreased both in number of cases, number of hospitalizations, number of deaths. So they clearly work. The, the problem is uh, when these restrictions are eased or lifted, that's when we see the resurgence. And this is what people are looking at and saying that the restrictions don't work. And that's absolutely incorrect. Chris, you followed up with Assemblyman Gallagher to see if he stands by his statement. What did he say? Well, I told him about our findings, and he said he remains unconvinced, saying he believes the drop in cases is more a correlation and not proof that the shutdowns caused them. Here's what he said. I think it'd be very difficult for any scientist um, uh, or epidemiologist to say uh, that the science is clear because... First of all, we've never done these type of lockdowns uh, historically when it comes to pandemics. And so we haven't even had the opportunity to do peer-reviewed scientific research uh, to show that the lockdowns, you know, scientifically worked. Chris, did you find any scientific studies that have looked at this? Yes, there are some well-vetted studies on this. One was published last month by the federal government, specifically the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. It found that stay-at-home orders in Delaware this spring, when combined with public mask mandates and contact tracing, led to an 82% reduction in COVID-19 cases, plus an 88% drop in hospitalizations and a 100% decline in deaths. And it's important to note that these studies, they also say that success depends on how much the public cooperates with the stay-at-home orders and that no single strategy is likely to be effective by itself. The, the mandates have to be combined with masks, hygiene, and people keeping their distance. In the end, how did you rate Gallagher's claim? We rated his claim as false. That was Cap Radio's PolitiFact California reporter, Chris Nichols, speaking with anchor Mike Haggerty. You can find Chris's fact checks online at politifact.com slash California. Several restaurants across San Diego have begun reopening their doors after a Supreme Court judge ruled restaurants can reopen with some restrictions. The change came on Thursday after a judge ruled in favor of two strip clubs that defied a statewide shutdown order. KPBS's Jacob Ayer reports. Just Wednesday, outdoor dining wasn't an option, but plans quickly changed overnight. It's been a roller coaster ride trying to get everybody back. Um, uh, last night, when we got the word, uh, the judge's ruling, when we were going to open, we're scrambling, calling all of the employees back to see who wanted to come back. Wednesday evening, San Diego Superior Court Judge Joel Wolfail ruled that two strip clubs, Pacers and Cheetahs, could remain open and operate despite the most recent COVID-19 shutdown orders from the state. The ruling appeared to extend to the county's ailing restaurant industry and allowed those businesses to reopen to some extent. Then, Thursday afternoon, Wolfail clarified his position. But the court's intention is that all businesses which provide restaurant service, meaning all restaurants in the county of San Diego, are encompassed within the scope of the court's order. It's not limited to plaintiffs who also provide restaurant service, but, uh, service, but it is intended to encompass all restaurants within the county of San Diego. San Diego attorney Dan Eaton says 
that the ruling could have larger implications. Other strip clubs or restaurants in other parts of the state may very well uh, try to uh, use this ruling, although it's not binding precedent, also to seek to have restrictions loosened. For Alex Navarrete, those loosened restrictions come as good news. Everybody's very excited. Our patrons are excited. Our uh, employees especially, glad to get them back, especially through these hard times that you know people want to work. And since um, the uncertainty right now with the, with the uh, politics, trying to get uh, the uh, unemployment for the employees just so they can uh, have a somewhat normal Christmas. Businesses still have to follow COVID-19 safety practices based off of the state's tiered system, such as physical distancing and mask wearing. Jacob Ayer, KPBS News. On Thursday, newly inaugurated San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria issued a statement imploring San Diegans to continue to heed public health guidance despite the ruling. He says no one wants small businesses to be closed, but that the science and data is showing a dire trend in hospitalizations and deaths. He urges all San Diegans to continue to stay at home as much as possible, to wear a mask, avoid large gatherings, and to order to go to support small businesses. He added that there's a collective obligation to accept the personal responsibility of keeping each other safe. Volunteers in COVID-19 vaccine trials receive either the real experimental vaccine or a placebo, but they don't know which. That's so scientists can compare data from the groups without participants influencing the results. As part of KPBS's Pandemic Profile series, KPBS health reporter Taryn Mento introduces us to two volunteers who think they figured out who got what. The lack of side effects from an experimental injection left trial volunteer Jennifer Bernal frustrated. There wasn't even a tender arm after like a flu shot. The mom of two enrolled in Moderna's vaccine trial to get immunity and protect her family. Look at my baby walking. She also wants to fight against a virus that can put patients on ventilators. Her wife recently went through it for other complications. But Bernal thinks her painless injection is a sign she got the placebo. Meanwhile, her cousin and fellow trial participant Alicia Martinez experienced a sore shoulder, fatigue, and an itchy underarm. (laughs) I did get worried. I was like, oh my God, am I going to have an itchy armpit forever? (laughs) Because it was like really itchy. The side effects were brief and among the common reactions reported, but Bernal is convinced it means her cousin got what she calls the good stuff. I really wanted the immunity, but I'm glad for her because she does have three kids. It's unclear when they'll know for sure. Moderna this week could be the second emergency approved vaccine after Pfizer. Federal regulators must decide if companies can inform placebo participants and alter the remainder of the study to offer them the emergency-approved vaccine when eligible. That was KPBS health reporter Taryn Mento. On Thursday, a federal advisory panel voted to recommend that the Moderna vaccine should receive medical use approval. The FDA is expected to follow the recommendation. On Thursday, San Diego officials got a single bid for a 20-year contract to provide the city with gas and electricity. KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen has more. 
San Diego's contract that allows SDG&E to deliver electricity and gas to customers expires in one month. The incumbent utility was the only company to bid on a new contract, and its bid was the bare minimum allowed, $80 million. The city could just take the deal, but City Councilmember Sean Ilo Rivera says the city should try to negotiate a better one. We cannot commit to a bad deal simply because we are in an economic crisis in this moment. This will impact us for decades after the city recovers from the current downturn. Mayor Todd Gloria's office says it is likely to ask for an extension of the current contract with SDG&E to relieve some time pressure and better evaluate the best path forward. Andrew Bowen, KPBS News. It's been 37 and a half years since one of San Diego's favorite sushi restaurants opened its doors. Now, the woman who founded Sushi Deli is retiring. KPBS reporter John Carroll tells us why she'll be so missed. It has been 37 years and six months. Hirue Otake is taking time these days to remember how she got here. She came to San Diego from Tokyo in 1981 and worked for a while at a car dealership before deciding she wanted to open a sushi restaurant. Initially, she was worried about whether San Diegans would take to sushi, so she hedged her bets. So I started selling uh, both sushi and sandwiches. That's why uh, we named it Sushi Deli. I named it Sushi Deli. But she started selling out of sushi every day. The sandwiches, not so much. So the sandwiches went, but the name stayed. Otake has faced hurdles over the years. She's had to relocate a few times. Once when the owner of the San Diego Hotel, where her restaurant was at the time, showed up at Friday Lunch Rush, shut off the water, and told everybody to get out of the building, as it had been deemed unsafe. But she's always bounced back. One of her managers, Mickey Holmes, has worked at a number of restaurants over the years, but she says there's nothing like Sushi Deli, and that's thanks to Hiroe Otake. She wants us to be here. She, like, she really cares about us. Otake's last day will be December 31st. She says as soon as the pandemic is over, she will return to Japan to visit her mother, who's 94. John Carroll, KPBS News. Coming up, a story of one Mexican-American teenager coming to terms with her immigrant grandparents supporting Donald Trump. kind of hard for me to understand how they could vote, everything you've gone through. That story next, just after this break. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. In North County, Mexican-American Marlene Herrera, a first-generation college student, spent election night trying to keep her political opinions to herself. This is KPBS reporter Max Rivlin-Nadler's final installment for a series of stories for every 30 seconds, a collaboration with PRI's The World. Approximately every 30 seconds, a young Latino in the U.S. turns 18. The series explored the young Latino electorate in the U.S. during this election year. Marlene saw her Mexican-American family go both ways during the election. My dad's house, they have a very different political view than me. And I spent that election week here 
So while everyone was rooting for the other side, I wasn't, <laughs> especially my grandpa. He kept coming out while the counting was still coming in, like saying Trump won, Trump won, but like in Spanish. <laughs> and I was just like, no, he did it. It's not done yet. Stop listening to your news. <laughs> her father and mother split up when she was young. So she divides her time between households. Her father's parents are immigrants from Mexico. They live with him and they all supported Donald Trump. Marlene's mother was pulling for Joe Biden. In the days after the election, she kept in touch with her mom about the results. But my mom and I, we were messaging each other like, have you seen the election? Did you see? And then the minute that Philadelphia turned, it cleared the way for Biden. My mom was the first one to call me. Did you see the election results? Did you see them? I'm like, yes, I did. I just woke up, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> A third of Latinos usually vote Republican. But Trump was able to build on that in this year's election, which left a lot of people wondering why. Marlene, who felt the impact of anti-immigrant rhetoric in her own high school, was coming to terms with her grandparents' support of Trump. I think my main thing that surprised me was my grandparents, considering the fact that they did come here as immigrants, and the whole hate that was sparked around the community because of Trump. It's kind of hard for me to understand how they could vote. Everything you've gone through to stay in this country, to have your green card and stuff. How can you do that? But I've mentioned before, it just, it comes down to perspective. Reflecting on these choices, Marlene realizes there's so much more that impacts someone's politics than just their identity. Her own father, who manages a grocery store, saw his hard work translate to economic stability. Marlene says this has led to a more comfortable life for her brother, Junior, who lives full-time with their father. As much as my dad helps me out, he gets me the things that I need. I didn't grow up the same way Junior did. I grew up in a single mother household, having to ride the bus every day, my mom being on food stamps, getting government help. Marlene's own experience has influenced her politics, but changing the minds of people in her immediate family, once they're made up, has been challenging, especially during a year where they've all been stuck inside together. It's so hard to change. A perspective. I know I get frustrated. That's just a big split between both my sides of my family. And KPBS reporter Max Rivlin Nadler joins us now. You've been following Marlene Herrera all year. How has the COVID 19 pandemic impacted her life and political perspective? She's had a turbulent year. Uh, she graduated high school and started college all virtually. On top of that, she's been helping her aunt take care of her three kids, so throw babysitter into the mix as well. So in terms of her own life experience, she's often felt like the federal government's lack of ability to control the virus has had her miss out on some really vital life experiences. She tells me that as a Latina working her way through college, she just doesn't want a government that's working against her. She's seen how the direct stimulus payments helped out her mom, but also how her mother wasn't able to see a doctor when she was sick earlier in the pandemic. Looking back on this project, what surprised you most about young Latino voters in San Diego? I think that young people, and especially young Latinos, are under no illusion that their organizing or marching or agitating ended on November 4th. Uh, as young people, they're fairly unified on a few issues. The environment, gun control, health care, the movement for black lives. But I think they're still trying to figure out where they fit into the political system. That was KPBS reporter Max Rivlin-Nadler reflecting on his year-long collaboration with The World, looking into young Latino voters. <music> 
Playwright August Wilson chronicled African-American life in his 20th century cycle of 10 plays, each focusing on a different decade. Now Denzel Washington wants to make sure those plays make it to the silver screen. KPBS film critic Beth Accomando says Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is the second Wilson play he's produced, and now it's available on Netflix. With Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, August Wilson offers a fictional story about a real blues singer in 1927 Chicago. Screenwriter Ruben Santiago Hudson had the challenge of adapting the play. The stage, people come to listen. In film, people come to watch. You know, so motion pictures is that. We tell a story with pictures more than words. So my challenge when I wrote Ma Rainey the movie was how do I save the arias? as many as I can. What are the most important arias? In the hands of performers Chadwick Boseman and Viola Davis, those emotional arias truly sing in the film. White folk don't understand about the blues. They hear it come out, but they don't know how it got there. They don't understand that that's life's way of talking. You don't sing to feel better. You sing because that's the way of understanding life. Blues help you get out of bed in the morning. You get up knowing you ain't alone. Something else in the world. Something been added by that song. This would be an empty world without the blues. I try to take that emptiness and fill it up with something. Wilson understood life, and now his great humanity is being vividly translated to the screen in films like Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. So treat yourself to an early holiday gift and check it out. Beth Accomando, KPBS News. And that's it for the podcast today. Be sure to catch KPBS Midday Edition at noon on KPBS Radio. Or watch KPBS Evening Edition at 5 o'clock on KPBS Television. As always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Annika Colbert, and I'll be off next week. You'll be hearing from your favorite host, KPBS Podcast Coordinator, Kinsey Moreland. Thanks for listening, and have a great and safe weekend. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.